0: What is happening everybody, welcome to Off The Rails, a recovery podcast dedicated to ending the stigma of addiction through open discussion on all things recovery related. My name is Mark and with me always are Dave and Jared. Today we have a special guest all the way from Glasgow, we got Tom Delaney. Thank you so much for (laughs) joining us. You right. Unfortunately I don't sound Scottish though, which I'm sure disappoints you all, (laughs) especially (laughs) Dave in the the Scotland top. Yeah, I'm (laughs) there. yeah Tom, so like like we mentioned before, we uh, you know we want to have our guests on and kind of come on and share their stories and and hope that uh, we can help other people that might be uh, might be struggling and um, so whatever you want to kind of get into or not get into is uh, is up to you, your story to tell. and uh, we're just so pumped that uh, you're able to take some time to join us today. so appreciate that. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, it's an absolute honor um, and a privilege to, to come on your show and, and, and more importantly talk about addiction because as I'm sure you guys are familiar you know it's such a stigmatized and demonized subject that as soon as you mention it it's, it's very taboo and no one wants to talk about it and a lot of that is because of the sort of negative thoughts that we instantly have when we think about addiction um but you know just before before we were on camera uh, before we started filming we were talking about like there's um I mentioned the fact that I'm in the respect like just as, as much as I've met or any other addict that I've met, I think the, the thing that we all have in common is trauma or adverse childhood experiences. And for me, when I think about my childhood, it was certainly during my childhood that, you know, I went through so many different adverse childhood experiences and I went through very deep and traumatic um, experiences that really, truly shaped my life, whether I wanted to, Um, accept that or not, you know, there was a lot of things that happened to me which were wrong. And, you know, throughout my entire life, I never really spoke about it. Um, And the reason why I guess I didn't speak about it was because I I was brought up in a a strict sort of Catholic Irish family. Um, And I was born and raised in Ireland in a beautiful place called Nina in Tipperary. And my parents, both Irish as well, sound Irish, those. (laughs) And um, we relocated from Ireland to London when I was around about three or four years old. And there's a there's a saying in Ireland and it never really made sense to me until I got into recovery. And I, I kind of think about it now. And it's there's um, there's no such thing as an alcoholic. There's just a man that likes a drink. And that's that's quite a cultural expression. Um, and when you think about that, that culturally, I mean, that's really concerning that. like you know, people still don't even register the fact that alcohol is uh, alcoholism is an issue because they just sort of dampen it down and say, oh, they just like a drink. And unfortunately my father um was and <clears throat> still is as far as I'm aware today, still um a raging alcoholic. But I also think um I think he has quite a lot of um underlying issues which he's never addressed. And I I think that it's been passed down from generation. I do not believe addiction is a disease, but I do believe that we grow, uh, we grow up in a in an environment that um, elicits certain behaviours where it will make you eventually turn to other things to give you pleasure or to mask the pain. And for me, that's what I certainly did in my addiction. Um, but my childhood was very. Was very traumatic. Um, I witnessed a lot of things that um, you know, like domestic violence and things even worse than that, which which no human being should really witness, especially an innocent little child. And my mum and dad, uh, thankfully, broke up uh, when I was about twelve years old. And I always used to blame myself for my for my father's ways. I used to think that I wasn't good enough. I never felt like I was loved. I always felt like sometimes my mum, um, sort of focused on other areas of her life which I felt that she was doing it as a way of escapism as well um but I always blamed myself for my for my dad's behaviors I always thought that it was me that made him like that I thought and I've got two younger brothers um, Patrick and Sean you know and they're they're younger than me and um, the sort of five years difference between all three of us but I think sometimes, and thankfully, maybe they were too young to remember some of the stuff that went off, but they're certainly old enough to understand that there was a lot of things that was um, that went off in our house, our household that certainly wasn't wasn't right um, and wasn't certainly healthy either. Um, but we used to, well, I speak for myself, but I, I feel like my brothers feel the exact same as me. And I used to blame myself. I just used to think that I wasn't good enough to be loved, and that's why my dad did what he did, and that's why my mum had her behaviours um and it's odd because like my mum isn't an addict she has never as far as I'm aware touched a drug um she doesn't even really drink um like I've probably only ever seen my mum drink alcohol twice and both of those occasions I thought it was really strange because I've never seen my mum drink um but my father (laughs) drank enough for the both of them and everyone else that probably lived in London and Ireland as well um and that left a lot of know a lot of deep scars um but I wasn't aware of that until I was sort of in my late 20s um I always had these underlying issues of never feeling good enough and never felt like I fitted in I didn't fit I didn't feel like I fitted into society um but especially I didn't feel like I belonged in my family I always felt that I was the odd one out I always felt that um it was my fault. I always used to blame myself for my my mother and father's relationship breakdown. I used to blame myself for my father's addictions because I used to think that, I mean, I haven't spoken to my father in years, but as far as I'm aware, he's still the same person pretty much. And he still gambles as well. He's a chronic gambler. Um, And thankfully I didn't see too much of him during my childhood. He was absent. It was absent quite a lot, but when we did, um, he made sure that uh, we sort of regretted it. Like it wasn't, it wasn't any pleasurable or sort of meaningful memories that I have of my father, which is which is tragic to say that. You know, I think when you think about your parents, they should be like your superheroes. Your mum and dad should be the people that you epitomise and idolise um, for a whole manner of different reasons. But for me, you know, I, I, I didn't really feel like I was loved, um, definitely more so by my father than my mother. Um, but I, I really struggled with that for years. And I mean, when you're a little kid, like how do you tell to someone or your friends that, you know, your dad, you know, beats your mom up or there's a lot of domestic violence and, you know, and there's all this other stuff. Like who do you talk to as a child? And and I always sort of, it was always bred into me that the troubles that went off in our household stayed in our household. And I think that's quite a common thing for a lot of people. And um, all the issues that, we were going through, you know, you were told, like, don't tell anybody, don't speak about anything. Um, you know, and I was warned by my father loads of times after certain things that happened, you know, I was told never to say anything. So I was, you know, I was shit scared. (laughs) Um, But I think mentally, I tried to block a lot of the pain out by acting out in other ways. So when I was a, a child, I was was quite intelligent at school I didn't really struggle academically but I did have I guess a few behavioral issues um I wouldn't say I was a naughty kid but I was certainly like a class clown and I thought I was a little comedian and I would I would be very challenging to teachers um and it wasn't until a few years ago actually that I realized but I think the reasons why I was so sort of abrupt and um resistant to adults or teachers because for me, they represented an adult and my father was such a, a pain in my life that I think the only way that I could take it out was I viewed the teacher as an adult figure, like my father. And I knew that I could get away with sort of back chatting to a teacher and I wouldn't get punched in the face. Um, whereas if I did that to my father, you know, um, that would have certainly happened and, and at times did happen. Um, so I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was particularly naughty, but I was definitely a class clown. And I always used to try and make everyone laugh. And I think ultimately I just wanted to be loved. You know, I wanted everybody to like me. Um, you know, and I never really suffered with, you know, I was never really bullied at school, I guess, to a certain degree, everyone's exposed to a slight form of bullying in some way, shape or form, uh, whether it be like mentally or physically, but, um, I don't think there was anybody at school that could have done anything half as bad as what my father did to me or what my stepdad did to me uh, later in life. You know, so thankfully I never did, but all of my issues were at home. You know? So it didn't really matter if I got bullied at school because I, I'd go home and I'd get far worse. Um, but school was, I think most kids hate school for a variety of different reasons. But for me, I actually, I loved going to school. Because when I went to school, I wasn't at home, I wasn't terrified or anxious about my father coming home or would he be going to work or would he be coming home with, you know, constantly hearing my mum and dad shouting and screaming at each other. Um, you know, I, I witnessed some terrible things as a child, but like, it's really weird because sometimes at school you're asked like, what's, you know, like a, a favourite memory or like what's something that like inspired you? And, and I tell this story Um, So as well as being a student, I'm also a public speaker. And so when I do my talks, sometimes I share this story and everybody's always really (laughs) baffled by it. But like one of the happiest memories in my, this will sort of give you just an insight into how my childhood was, but one of the happiest memories of of my childhood was, unfortunately, um, my father used to be, um, you know, very sort of violent and abusive to my mum especially um and i remember on this certain occasion he came home drunk and they were arguing as as always and um he punched my mum and he like it it, like i know it hurts her anyway if if you punch someone with intent it genuinely seems to hurt um but it it sounded like it was a lot harder and a lot more um abrupt than the normal and um she, she managed to get off the floor and she ran straight into the kitchen and my father chased her. Um, and my mum actually grabbed a kitchen knife um, and pinned him to the fridge and, and told him if he didn't fuck off that she would kill him. And if she didn't kill him then she would slit his throat in his sleep. Now that might sound really <laughs> like some out of a horror film but that is literally one of the happiest moments of my life because for the first time in my life I saw my mum stand up for herself. Now I don't condone violence but you know, I think in that instance, she did the right thing. And I've got no doubt in my mind that my mum would have killed my father if he didn't leave. And eventually my my dad shit himself because uh, he was a, a, you know, bullies aren't necessarily um, brave people. <laughs> That's why they tend to be bullies. But um, he left and, um, you know, he tried to worm his way back in. And my parents had a habit of breaking up, getting back together, breaking up, getting back together. And I think my mum did it to try and keep us together as a family. But ultimately, it was just the wrong decision each and every time, you know, you say it would change and, you know, you'd have all probably all good intentions of actually changing, but you could just never do it. Um, and there's a whole, you know, there's a whole variety of reasons for that as well. But um, ultimately, we, we ended up moving. So I lived in, I grew up in Hackney in London uh, from like three, four years old to, to being about 12. And then we moved from London to South Yorkshire uh in Barnsley which is like this sort of weird accent that I've got now so I went from having an Irish accent to a Cockney accent to then this like northern English accent and now it's a little bit messed up but um for the first time you know most people I think when you're a child like, like when your parents break up it's like a really big deal and, and generally speaking it's quite a traumatic time but it, it wasn't like that for us um we loved it and my, you know, I can speak for my brothers and my mum when I say that. We absolutely loved getting away from my father and getting away from London. Um, you know, London's a big city. Um, we went, we moved to a house that had like a front and back garden, and all of this was like a completely new experience. Um, you know, and I wasn't scared of meeting new people um, or changing schools or going to a new school or, or any of that. You know, ultimately, I knew that we were moving to get away from him. And that was the best thing, you know, that was the best thing that my mum probably ever did. But unfortunately, um, it was only good for about a year or so. And unfortunately, she met um, another guy and my mum seems to have this type, um, which is all sort of like just, (laughs) can I swear? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just wankers, basically, just like complete arseholes that they're all... Severely messed up in their heads. Um, they've all got issues with substance abuse. Like generally speaking, she goes for the same sort, which is like alcoholic gamblers uh, that are violent and abusive. And she met this guy who seemed obviously nice at first, but again, you know, he had his own issues. But that isn't a justification of of how you act. I mean, we've all got issues, but it doesn't it's not an excuse for how you act and treat others. Um, and he was not not as much like physically violent um, but mentally worse than my father um, and I think for me what it instilled into, into my ideas and my, my self-worth and belief was right so you, your dad hated you that's why he did what he did and he treated you like he did and he treated your mum and your brothers the same it's, you know because you're not worthy enough to be loved and you're a horrible little human being and then when it's just another guy that's not your father and then he treats you the exact same it kind of it kind of confirmed and affirmed that idea that i'm just a waste you know just a useless piece of shit that doesn't or ever will feel love um from parent like from my parents and that was a very difficult time um, especially sort of when you're going through puberty and all that cuz i was like 12 to like it was there from being like 12 to about 18, and um, maybe even a bit longer. Um, but when you're sort of going through that sort of pre um, sort of that, that puberic stage where you start to question the world around you, you start to think, you, you have ideas and thoughts that you never had when you were a child. And I always used to sort of think about how I was treated, and it used, to, it used to really affirm the idea that I was useless, you know, that I, I didn't deserve any happiness, I didn't deserve to be loved, I actually deserved being bullied and treated like the way I was, Um, you know, and and I still talk to my mum to this day and I love mum to bits, but sometimes we have a a very difficult relationship. Um, But, you know, we work together at it, you know, it's, whereas with my father, we just don't speak. And and I think that's, that's tragic. Um, But I think also I'm old enough now and, and ugly enough to know that, you know, I hope he changes, I, I, I wish, I'd I fucking love it if he did, um, I really would, but uh, I know it's very pessimistic, but for me it's just easier if I just accept the fact that, right, he's probably not going to change, and as Trump, you know, as, as, as sort of devastating as that is, at least I'm not sort of building my hopes up and having them crushed, because I did that all my life, you know, I've always kind of hoped that my father would change, or there's been times when I've sort of like moved back to Ireland for a while um, or I moved back to London sort of in my late teens, um, early 20s, and I thought that I tried to build a relationship with him um, and it just it was just horrible. Um, like it, it's so uncomfortable. Even when I was with him, it was very uncomfortable um, and, and it just made me feel very on edge. You know, I as much wants to... <laughs> as much as I'd love to hug him and you know wish everything was all right on the same hand you know on the other hand sorry you know I'd I'd love to punch his face and then not stop um so it's a very you know it's very disturbing so for me I just cut my ties and and it's easier you know for me in some respects it's easy because I'm not hoping you know I hope that it does change but um you know unfortunately I, I can't see it um and it's a shame you know but you know that's, that's his choice and it's what he wants to do. So, but yeah, so I moved around a lot. Um, sort of I ran away from home quite a few times as a child, so sort in of my teenage years. Um, and until I was like sort of 16, 17, I moved out from home. Um, I hated being at home because we'll just call him my stepfather, even though he isn't my mom, him and my mom aren't together anymore. I haven't been for a long time. But he had that role. Um, you know, he, he had a, I guess, an element of responsibility and also someone that I should have looked up to and admired in some way, shape or form. But um no, there wasn't any of that at all. Um he was horrible. Um and he had two children with my mom, my little brother and sister. Um, and for years, like I'm quite ashamed to say this, but for years, I, I hated them. Um they were always treated very different than me and my siblings, my my brothers, Patrick and Sean, they were always... I always felt like once they were born, it was two families. It was them and it was us. (laughs) And I think I've always kind of felt like that. It was always like them being my father and us being my mum and my brothers. And then it had transformed from that to it's them, which is this bloke, my mum and their new kids. And then it's me and my two brothers. And I thought when I left that the troubles would have stopped, um, but unfortunately they didn't. Um, so rather than him bullying and tormenting me and doing the things that he used to do, he then started to bully and you know, be quite violent and abusive, uh, physically abusive, um, to my brothers. And I never knew about that. And years later, my brother told me and I cried my eyes out. Um, and I felt I felt disgusted that... I should have been there to protect him and I kind of ran off to London, started a new life and they were going through what I was going through. I thought it was just me. And I keep saying that because I did think it was just me. I just thought it was me that didn't deserve any love or any attention or or any kindness or compassion or anything like that. But um, I think my younger brother, especially Sean, like, it's brought us, like, really close together, especially now I'm in recovery. Um, but eventually, you know, it, it drove me It drove me away from my family. It drove me away from myself. And, it, you know, eventually it, it drove me into choosing drugs, which is quite weird because I think as a child, if you ever met me as a child, I was always against drugs and alcohol. Because I assumed that if you drank, <laughs> you turned into my dad um, or you turned into my stepdad. Um, and they weren't nice people so for me I, I wasn't one of those kids that like would drink on a school field and you know run away and sort of drink or come home and sneak in and that wasn't that wasn't me um, but then I eventually I think I was at I was at college I was at Barnsley College um, studying fashion <laughs> designing and textiles and then um, I got introduced like at this point I would go out and drink Every so often, but to me, it wasn't drinking. What it to me, going out and sort of living in that environment and being young, I had friends. So it it was a a completely new social circle for me, and I had a bunch of friends that I felt loved. I felt a part of this little group. I was going to say gang, that might be the wrong word, Um, but like you know, I felt part of this little group of people, Um, and I loved going out and meeting new people and just chatting shit and you know trying to forget about all my issues and and just sort of living in that moment of being away and being free um but unfortunately one day my the friends that used to hang around with and still some of them today um they were quite a few years older than me and they were always like quite looking people very popular with women I was sort of 17 16 17 ish and I was sort of like at that age sort of becoming like interested in girls and I was always really shy um which when I say to people that they never believe me <laughs> because I was probably very um, like sort of outgoing, um, but inside I was incredibly shy. And I think I used to hide it by being a bit more um, extroverted, probably than normal. But um, I remember talking to one of my friends and I said, like, how, how do you like talk to all these girls? Like, why are you not scared or shy? And he's like, he just laughed and he went, why would you be scared? And I think for me, it was always, I've always had that fear of rejection because I've been rejected by well, probably, you know, fundamentally some of the most important people in my life. And I always felt, I think, when I've sort of analysed my life, I've always felt that it was fear of rejection that, that was the issue. Um, and he was like, it's easy. And then he, he sort of flippantly and joked, he says, well, it's easier when you've got cocaine in you as well, like when you've got cocaine in your system. And I was like, what's that? Like that's how naive I was. Um, and at this point, I was sort of 17, 17, leading up to 18. And um, he was like, oh, well, I've, I've got some if you want to try it. Now, at this point, like, I, I was always very anti-drugs, never thought about taking them, never sort of um, had any interest or sort of desire to do it. And it wasn't peer pressure either. Like, he never, he never forced me to. He just asked him, just you're yeah, all right then. Um, I was like, I'm not going to die. And he was like, no, don't be stupid, but obviously, you know, people do die from taking drugs, even for the first time. And um, we went down this little sort of journal at the back of this Greg's shop that used to be in the centre of town. And he got it out and he was sort of crushing it. Um, and I was that naive that I didn't even know how to, to snort it. I was like, what do I do? And he was like, well, you roll a note, you put it in and you take it. So the first time I tried, I actually blew it out. <laughs> so I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, unfortunately, I became very good at doing it at one point. But then um, <laughs> the first time I, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I actually blew it away and he started kicking off. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do that. Like, I'll pay for it. Like, don't worry. So then he went, right, I have another go. So then I did it again. But I absolutely snorted like half of this bag. Um, so I took a lot. Um, and it kicked in like really fast. And I think, you know, I think we all remember our first time of it, of anything. Um, And for me, I remember, like, it literally took a few minutes and I felt that, like, sort of... I hate sort of, like, sounds like I'm romancing over it, but, like, that sort of tingling shiver, it was cooking as well. So it was, like, all the way up my spine and it just, like, snapped in my brain. And I was like, oh, shit, like, what is this? (laughs) And I I loved it, Um, you know, and instantly I think I was completely hooked. I absolutely loved how I felt. I loved how it made it broke down barriers for for me internally that i wasn't scared to speak to people i wasn't nervous i wasn't fearful of rejection um and i and i went out that night and you know i had probably one of the most amazing euphoric nights i've ever had in my life but that sort of honeymoon period <laughs> doesn't last long um you know i was a drug addict for the best part of 12 13 years um and I only probably enjoyed taking drugs for about a year and I I, I genuinely mean that. Um, and I I don't want to say that to like to any listeners thinking, Oh great. I can, you know, I can take coke for a year and then stop (laughs) because if, if everyone can do that, then, you know, I wouldn't have (laughs) been in the state I was in the end. Um, but then I, I quickly became, um, addicted to cocaine. Um, I also don't like saying this either, but it was manageable to a degree. Like I could go to college, I could go to work, I could, you know, I wouldn't sit at home and be snorting it every single day. Um, But then gradually it became worse and worse and worse. And I I ended up losing a job over it because I I basically had an overdose. Um, I'd been partying all weekend at a hotel, uh, like thinking I was some like, you know, baller. (laughs) like everyone does at that age. And um, I didn't sleep for like, went out, I think, Thursday. I had, it was like a bank holiday weekend, so there was no work. I think it was Friday and Monday or Monday or Friday, one of the two. And I'd literally gone out. We went back to this hotel and we didn't leave this hotel for like sort of two or three days, which is disgusting. You know, I think about it now, it was horrible. But in that moment, I loved it. Um, and I went to work and I collapsed. Um I'd actually had a line of coke in the toilet before I sat at my desk. And as I sat at my desk, I passed out. And my boss at the time was also an ex, um, I think he was like a police constantly. It was a, Well, he was in the police force, but I think he was like CID or something. So he was a bit more probably aware of drugs than, than, than your usual police officer. Um, and rather than helping me or talking to me, um, I got sent to hospital. Once I got discharged, um, I had a voicemail from him saying look you're fired don't bother coming back um if there's anything you want to collect from your desk then you know i'll send it to you uh, do not come to these premises that's it done um and i thought well, i hated that job anyway <laughs> i was always trying to make it like positive and i was like i didn't want to go there anyway and what i did was i completely failed to recognize the severity of of what had just happened um so then not long after that, I moved back to Ireland for about six months. Didn't take drugs, didn't touch drugs, went out and drank a few times, but that was it. Um, and then I came back and I spent one day in Barnsley and then I moved to London. Um and I lived there for about three, three, three and a bit years again, um, sort of in my late teens, early twenties. And um again, it was it was manageable. Like I was one of those guys that could get up like probably most functioning addicts or highly functioning addicts. I could get up Monday morning, go to work, do my job, do it well. Um, and, you know, Friday night or even Friday at work, I'd be like, right, I need X amount of bags of cooking, blah, 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 pills and this. And I'd be ordering the drugs, get them all sorted while I'm at work. And then but like straight after work, go out, party Friday, Saturday, probably led into Sunday. And then I'd stop and then I'd, you know, I'd, I'd go to work and, that sort of period lasted for a couple of years. Um, and it wasn't until I was about nine, no, I was probably about 19 or 20. And I used to visit Barnsley every so often. And like when I lived in London, I used to come back, see my family, um, and, and go out. And um, I got introduced to ketamine, uh, which was the drug that <laughs> almost killed me. And um, I am. Um, I despised ketamine. I don't like. I don't know if you call it. Well, we call it ket. I presume you call it the same thing. But everyone assumes it's a horse tranquilizer. It's not. It's just an anesthetic that's used in a lot of doctors or hospitals as well, um, as well as veterinary practices. But um, the reason why I used to hate it was it was probably the most unsociable drug that I'd ever seen. So I had quite, like I said, I had quite a lot of good, like you know, really good friends that were, you know, very popular, good looking, cool sort of people you know nice people as well and um you know they'd be at that stage of my life it was all about going out and sort of pulling girls, right which is really sad when you think about it but that's what I did and I think we'll all go through that phase and I think you have to go through it to realize later in life how sort of silly and meaningless it is but um but I guess you can learn from it and um what like my friends would like to be, you know, we'd be having a laugh and then all of a sudden they'd, they'd hide around the corner and they'd all have like a few keys of cat. And then that's it. They'd be like a zombie and literally like dribbling, doing all these weird things. And then like, everybody'd be laughing and you'd be sat there. Like at this point, I still took like a lot of cocaine and I'd be like, oh, what a dick. Do you know? I'd be like, come on, we've been having a good night and now like you need an ambulance, like you need to go home. Uh, so you go into like a K-Hole um, or a K-Hole, I don't know what you guys call it, we call it a K-Hole. Yeah, okay. um, yeah, and you've just got like no concept of reality. Um, I mean, you don't really have much of that in in addiction anyway, but you especially don't in a K-Hole. And um, I always used to think like, God, that's a disgusting drug. Not that, you know, (laughs) cocaine is not much better, but at that point in my life, you know, I thought cocaine was a much safer and glamorous. And, you know, cocaine is glamorised. You know, you don't see people like in, there's loads of Netflix documentaries or films and they all portray this life of cocaine, you know, being very glamorous and exquisite. And that's not the case Um, like with any drug. Um, I remember once my friend used to mix it, uh, CK was called, so it was like cocaine and ketamine. And I tried it, and I never felt anything. And I was like, like oh, that doesn't do anything. Um, it's shit. Um, and he went, oh, well, just try it with cat." And I remember trying it, and I, I literally, again, went stupid and had, like, this massive line. And I must have been out of it for about four hours, um, and I cannot remember a thing. And um, I was like, oh, I don't know if I like that. And then I tried it again and, and again and again, but... Me and two of my friends in the beginning, we used to like buy a gram to share. And this is like very, very early on and um, sort of early 20s. And um, we'd buy a gram between three of us and it would last us on a, a Wednesday night. used to be a student night if, if I went out in town and um, it would last us like a Wednesday night and then maybe Friday. And we might have to buy some more if we went out Saturday night. But that was like three of us. Um And like all things, you know, you've become um, accustomed to it, you know, so the the tolerance in your body and everything else, your mind and your body builds up um, really quickly. And I went from sort of in the beginning where a gram would last me and two of my mates, like two nights, possibly three nights out, you know, and we wouldn't do it for the day, so we'd save it just purely at night, and that was that, Um, to then, you know, at my my worst, the day I – ended up going to rehab i sniffed 36 gram in 10 hours um which is 3.6 grams an hour and also i was traveling to scotland on the trains to rehab as well so if you can imagine like i had to catch five separate trains and i was up at 5 a.m and i didn't get to rehab until i think midday and i from from buying it it had gone and it was in something like 10 hours a 10 hour period i sniffed an ounce and a quart um and if you'd have seen me like I was six stone and dying but I wasn't fucked like I wasn't out of it I I certainly wasn't in a kettle um and that like I I went through a stage in my life of sniffing like ounces a day just going through it like as soon as I got up and we used to call it like death lines (laughs) um which ironically eventually ended up like that and um like I can remember once I snorted, I think it was a meter line off my friend's kitchen table. Um, and he was a quantity surveyor. So he had like one of the meter stick things. And I was like, no, I could do this. And like showing sure off, which is obviously not something you want to show off about. Um, and I snorted it. And I was, you know, I was fucked for about two or three hours. But we we kind of thought that that was amazing. You know, we thought it was amazing to, to be able to snort that much or to go out and do it. And you know, there was a lot of, Unfortunately, I got involved in like the dark side of of drugs as well, where I I became a drug dealer through sort of my late, well, sorry, um, sort of early 20s. And I ended up like just buying a bit extra or I'd like buy an ounce to sell to my friends so I could get like, you know, four or five, 10 for free. They make a little bit of money. I never started doing that because I wanted to be a drug dealer, you know, and even at that point, I never imagined myself or viewed myself as a drug dealer. I just saw it as, well, all my mates are taking it. We're always messing about trying to run around and get it. So if I just get it, then everyone can just get off me and we're all out together. And it's just easier. And obviously, then I I make a bit for myself and that pays my night out. And also I get, which is the, the real reason, which was I got free, plenty of free drugs. And I went from sort of dealing, like, you know, grams on a weekend um, to kilos a day um, within a six-month period. And unfortunately, um, it ended up – I mean, I think when you get involved in addiction, especially when you get involved in addiction, but when you get involved in dealing drugs, I, I don't think that story, like, ever ends well. <laughs> um, I like mean, if you look at Pablo Escobar, they really had well for him or any other drug dealer. Like it always either results in death or prison. Um, and generally speaking, that is how, it, you know, I, I don't know anybody that could be like, oh, well, I haven't gone to prison or didn't get stabbed or anything like that. Um, it's always very grim. But um, I ended up um, being robbed and I got held at gunpoint um, by a bloke that actually owed my friend quite a lot of money through drugs. Um, and he'd been set up. But unfortunately, I lived with this friend at the time and um, said friend wasn't in. I was and I was kitty because I'd been rock climbing all day and I came back and I wasn't going to go out. And it was just me in the house enjoying the quiet time being on cat. And uh, there was a knock at the door, which I thought was weird because our door was never locked. Uh, and as I walked down the stairs, I only had a towel on as well. So <laughs> I was naked. Um, and as I opened the door, he kicked it in and it knocked me flying. It also knocked my towel off. So not only was I being held at gunpoint and robbed, but I was stuck, bullet naked um, and Ketty, which is <laughs> weird, not just for him, but also for me. But hopefully it was more weirder for him than it was for me. Um, and then he ended up, you know, he took loads of, he took, um, I think it was about six or seven kilos in the house at the time, um, which they knew were there because they'd ordered more drugs. That was. That's how they knew it was there, Um, and they stole all the money as well. Um, But what happened was when the the getaway driver drove off, he was ketty as well, Um, and he drove... Sorry not cats. (laughs) And um, when they drove off, the driver didn't have his lights on and it was nighttime when it happened and he was driving like an idiot all over the road and it just happened that a police car drove past. and saw them driving erratically and obviously with the lights off, which was dangerous, turned into a police chase. They crashed. Uh, the guy ran off through the gun. Money was like flying everywhere. Drugs was all over the car. Um, and then they got um, obviously arrested, but rather than saying like stupidly, what they said was the truth. <laughs> it's a bit of a weird, <laughs> um, it's a bit of a paradox, but um they actually rather than just saying, "Oh, it's our drugs and it's our money," they actually went, "Oh well, we've just robbed this house um held a guy at gunpoint, stole the money, stole the drugs, and obviously their intent was to to, <laughs> to sell those drugs it's so rather than done there. yeah, like yeah. they're obviously not world class criminals um and um, it's really strange actually, because I- I've bumped into both of those people since um. One of them, whilst I've been in recovery, and the other one whilst I was still a, a drug addict, and he actually apologised, um, both of them, separately, which is all right, because one of them enters like, like these world Strongman competitions. And like, he would kill me if he wanted to. Um, but he apologised. He says, look, I'm sorry. It was just, you know, I didn't know it was you that was going to be there and, and everything else. And I was all right. You know, I was. I said, don't, you know, don't worry about it. And... Um, and then the other guy, um, the getaway driver, eventually, um, only a couple of years ago, messaged me asking for help, and that was that really put me in a weird sort of situation because I was like, I "Was like, no, you fucked my life up, Like, You're a little dick." But then also, the, there was a part of me that like, "Well, you were a little dick," <laughs> do you know what I mean? It was I was a little dick as well, and I, I was like, "Well, I've he's reached out," you know, that takes a lot of strength and courage to do that. So I was a bit torn whether or not to ignore him or to not ignore him. And the reason why he actually messaged me was, so like eventually I went into rehab, um, you know, and and I had a very successful career after I gave up dealing drugs. And I sort of, I I loved my job. I worked in the education sector, which is weird considering I was still a drug addict. (laughs) I didn't didn't look like one because we all assume what drug addicts look like. And generally speaking, it's not highly functional drug addicts that wear an expensive suit and have loads of business meetings and go around the country meeting new people and, and selling them shit. And that's what I did. Um, But I also did that because I wanted people not to know that I was a drug addict. Because I thought the more successful I am or the more I look like I've got money or the more money I earn or the better I do at work or, you know, the, you know, the, the more, like, the prettier the girlfriend I have or you know the better cut all this external material bullshit i used to have because i felt like i needed it because deep down inside i was nothing you know i was just and i hate to admit it but i was worthless my life was shit you know everything i had in my life i had it for a purpose and it was to appear that i wasn't a drug addict you know and, and that's terrible you know especially when you think about i was in a relationship with a girl at the time for um obviously I had like several relationships but like at the time of sort of just before going into rehab, um, I, I was in a relationship and it was horrible for her. It must have been horrible for her. Um, and, you know, she tried to help me. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever been with a partner that hasn't tried to help me. But I never wanted the help. I would do. I'd go to counselling, or I'd go and pay. I think I paid like eighty pound for like these CBT sessions for an hour, and just used to make me pretend I was a tree. Um, it didn't help. And also, what I used to do is go to a bathroom first and snort a massive amount of cat, <laughs> go back downstairs, and then pretend I was a, a tree where my feet was the roots screw. And I, as, as enjoyable as that is, sometimes I still do that kind that type of sort of relaxation. Like it wasn't good when I was on drugs, you know. And, and I I did that just to keep her quiet. So she would take me way outside. And I just think about the things that people try, like people tried, like oh, people always ask me, like, do people, do people help or do people try? Yeah, of course people tried. You know, I had a lot of people in my life that that really loved and cared for me, including, you know, family and friends. Um, but I was never ready. And I, I never Thought that my addiction was as bad as what it was, you know, and, and I don't think we do. And until we fully accept how messed up things are, then then we'll never change. But I was made redundant um, in 2018, mm-hmm. and I'd worked there for almost seven years. The about what about a month before? No, um, I got I found out I was being made redundant in January. I then broke up with my girlfriend at the time. I think on like Valentine's Day, which was. The best thing I ever did for either of us um because now she's happy and I'm in a much you know I'm happy as well in a much better place physically spiritually emotionally um and that was hard and then you know I lost everything I'd, I'd come out of a long-term relationship I'd lost my career and everything that I placed so much value and emphasis on to make me look like I wasn't a drug addict I started losing I lived in a beautiful apartment and um, in the Peak District and I then had to give up the lease on the apartment, which then sort of technically made me homeless. Um, and within, I officially got made redundant in um, sort of April, May. And even though I was a drug addict, I used to cling on to the fact that I had this great career. And, and believe it or not, it, it gave me a sense of purpose and meaning. You know, I had something to get up to, despite, you know, still using every evening and every weekend and every opportunity that I could that wasn't in work. And I, I worked from home at this period of time as well just quite dangerous sometimes but um i lost everything um i included my health my mental health was shot to bits i had you know several suicide attempts i ended up selling my car to pay a drug debt i had to move back to my mum's uh, at the time she was in a relationship with a, another generic arsehole should we say um and it was it was horrific uh, and then i went from being relatively fit and healthy um, to literally losing half my body weight in a matter of months so I went down to six stone um and I looked what you would stereotypically imagine a drug addict to look like and it's funny because I was a drug addict for 12 13 years maybe even 14 so from roughly being the age of 18 to 32 um so what's that 14 years and I only looked what you would imagine a you know a drug addict to look like for about 8 months 9 months um, and everyone when i show people the image of what i look like cuz i took some i presume you've seen the pictures and that's how it sort of, i think spoiler initially isn't it so when i when people look at those images they're like oh my god like, that's that's what a drug addict looks like but i was a drug addict for years before then you know and, and no one ever had an idea no one had the even slightest inclination that i was a drug addict but I was, you know What's happening, everybody? Um, I hope you're enjoying Tom's episode so far. Tom's an amazing speaker, great dude. Um, and make sure you check out part two to hear the rest of Tom's recovery journey. Um as always, please like, subscribe, comment, reach out to us, and uh, if you're struggling with you know if you're struggling with addiction, please reach out and ask for help. Thanks for listening.